in my life that I call iron sharpeners. That's from Proverbs 27, 17. Jared Hunter was one of those guys. Whenever my family and I moved back to Enid uh, almost six years ago, Jared invited me to come and visit EMB when we were looking for churches. And the first Sunday we came, he preached. I still remember he was in Colossians, preached about the supremacy of Christ. Jared lives that. Uh, and I'm excited to hear what he has to say about uh, a great chapter in Genesis. check. All right. It was, uh, you guys remember Garvey, Garvey Schmidt, you know, and his son, uh, he he would say this. I love it. Uh, He says, uh, if something's broke, something doesn't work, he says, you shouldn't even have it. And (laughs) I often think of that when there's technology problems, shouldn't, shouldn't even have it. And, uh, well, it is a privilege to be here this morning. And like Terrell said, um, how many times, well, I'm thinking, how many times do we come to church and we just, we do it as a routine and it's not so much just finding joy in God. And so this morning, as we turn our attention to God's word, let's do that. Uh, let's, find, let's find joy together in looking at his word. And so I want to invite you as we go there now to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, uh, as we continue our study through Genesis here. If you're new to the Bible uh, or don't have a Bible, there's one probably provided for you somewhere near you there, and that's on page 12. Page 12, we'll start looking at Genesis 18. I'm going to read through the text and, and for us. I want you to follow along with me, uh, but as we do, there's so much here. Really, there's, there's uh, probably two different scenes that we can see as uh, three men come to visit Abraham, but there's but there is uh, so much here that we're not going to get a chance to cover it all. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the text, and I'm going to highlight some things as we read, uh, and then I'm going to stop, and uh, we're going to pray together. And after that, I want to focus our attention and zero in on one specific truth, one nugget from here that I feel uh, it really brings it together and is profitable for us as we remember what God has done for us, and we find ourselves enjoying him. So, would you turn your attention to Genesis 18? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses writes, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, 
If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought to you and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself and and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. First thing that we're observing here is this uh, three men often maybe have thought this to be, some have thought this to be a, um, a representation of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have three men coming to visit Abraham right after he has been circumcised, right? He and his household, his whole family, and now here they are about maybe a month or so later. He's sitting there at the tent door, and three men appear to him, and he, he doesn't just quietly get up, does he? He gets up and he runs to them, and this is this, this shows you the importance of these three men that Abraham saw because Middle Eastern men who are his age, 99 years old, of some kind of status and esteem, they don't get up and run. You know, that's a little bit beneath them. That's what you see in the same story with the prodigal son. The father ran out to him. Here, Abraham is, is kind of showing that, the excitement, the joy, the gladness that he has at the, at the visitation by these men. But who are they? Who are these men? Well, verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, tells us that two of them are angels. Two of them are angels, and so that leaves us with the question of who's the third mystery man? And it's a, I believe it's the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, even before Jesus was born, even before pointing to and, and foretelling the fact that Jesus was going to come. We see that, and I can show you a little bit of confirmation probably for that in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with the Jewish people, the religious leaders, and he's discussing with them where he's not here to seek his own glory, but to give glory to the Father. And then if you look down, he, in verse uh, 56 of chapter 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And then it says this, he saw it and was glad. He saw it and he was glad. And they answered back to him, the Jews said, you're not 50 years old yet. How is it that you, how is it that you say that you've seen Abraham? And this is where we famously get Jesus saying, before Abraham, what? I was. I am. I am I'm there. And so before Abraham was born, I was there. I am God. And so what did they do? They picked up a stone to throw at him. They wanted to kill him because Jesus is proclaiming to be God. And here in this text this morning, we see uh, a manifestation of God in the flesh. I believe it's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He continues on here in verse 6 as we read. It says, Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three say is a flour. Knead it. Make it into cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, and he took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to, the young, to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds um, and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was in the tent, behind the door, listening to what they're saying. Now Abraham, 
and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So she laughed, not out loud, not so everybody could hear her, but it says that she laughed inwardly, saying to herself, I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then when the men set out from there, here's the next scene. The men leave their house there, this interaction with Abram. They set out from there, and they look down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, uh, great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom, he's talking to Abraham and Gomorrah, is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see what they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood, uh, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it. If I find 45 there again, he spoke to him and he said, suppose 45 or 40 are found there. He answered for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it. If I find 30 there, he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are there are found there. He answered for the sake of. Of twenty, I will not destroy it. And then he said one more time, Abraham, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. I'm not going to labor on this point, but I want you to see something about the character and nature of God. Scripture tells us that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and kindness, right? Look at this slow to anger, this compassion that he has. As Abraham says, what about those 50 righteous people? What about that 45 righteous? What about those 30, the 20, the 10? 
Lord's like, I, won't, I will spare him if there's that. But then also the scripture tells us that the Lord is compassionate, slow to anger, but by no means will he allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so we move into chapter 19, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the rescue and the destruction. But I also want you to notice here that Abraham is in a covenant relationship with God. Notice how the interaction goes. Notice that it's not this fear. We sang about that. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I can walk to my Savior. I can be in the presence of God and not fear because of what Christ has done for us. I can have a conversation with Him. And that's exactly what God wants for us, those who follow and trust in Him. Sometimes we probably uh, long for a relationship like this. And And you know, that's what we talk about. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship with God. And we see this modeled in the way that Abraham and Christ are having this conversation together, this covenant relationship uh, based on what God has done and will finally do. I want to turn our attention to one little nugget here in chapter 18 that I think we can focus our attention on and that will be profitable for us. But before we do, can we pray together? Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you, we humble ourselves before you, and we confess today, God, that we need your word. We are desperate for it. It is good and precious. Lord, this word, this word that you have for us today Lord, we, we, we confess and we believe that it is good and profitable for us. So this morning, would you do the impossible? God, you know that I can't preach in such a way that would cause hearts to rejoice in you, to glory in you, to lift up Christ, but you can do that. Would you open our eyes and soften our hearts? Would you awaken us to all that you are for us in Christ our Savior? Renew your people today. Give them great confidence in your word and your precious promises as we fix our eyes on Christ. It's for his name that we pray and for our good. And those who agreed said, amen. Well, there isn't a day that goes by that you and I, if we would take time to stop and think about it, that we aren't faced with impossible things, things that are out of our control, things that are impossible uh, for us to do. This can simply be observed in uh, preventing the common cold. It's flu season, and as much as we've tried to not shake hands, like someone told me this first service, Chris, that's probably why we didn't have a greeting time in the first service, is because we didn't want to spread germs, but we did it in the second service, so maybe it was just... That's what we did. But here, you know, common cold, the flu, we can't always prevent that, right? We can do everything in our mind, everything that we can. We can take the flu shot. We can stay away from people. We can put thieves all over us. But maybe we'll still get the flu, right? And then, if you don't know what thieves are, it's, it's not like real thieves. It's, it's, an, it's essential oil, okay? But what about, what about farmers? We still have farmers around here. What about farmers All right, you're faced with the impossibility of actually making your crops grow. I mean, you can till the ground, or maybe not, 
right? You can plant and you can spray and you can water, but only God can give the growth. Now, if you want to interpret that spiritually and eternally, we are faced with the inability to actually change our own hearts. The impossibility that we would uh, be formed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't persist in that. The scripture says, don't grow weary in doing good. Or as verse 19 in Genesis 18 says, that we are to command our children and our household after us to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Man, I want to call attention specifically to you as you lead your families. As you walk in the way of the Lord. It says, I have chosen you. I'm commanding you to teach your children and grandparents, not just your children, but the children after your children, the household after us, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So we must persist in this, but only God can make this happen. Just last week, I was having a conversation with someone that I work with about parenting. And we were discussing that as parents, we can share the truth of Scripture with our kids, right? We can share it perfectly. We can lay the gospel out before them. We can reveal what God's will is for them. We can do it in such a a wonderful way. But only God can take off blinders. Only God can cause the light bulb to come, come on and say, oh, I get that. And not only do I get that, but I rejoice in that truth. Heart transformation is impossible for us as parents. As much as we want our children's heart to change and to be shaped, or as much as we want our hearts to be changed, only God can change us from the inside out. Now, for the next moments here, I want to zero in here on the question. The question that we find in verse 14 that the Lord asks Abraham. Here in the conversation is as Sarah laughing to herself and the Lord knows that. You can't hide anything from the Lord. He says in verse 14, the first part, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now obviously this is a rhetorical question, right? It is meant for us to answer back, well, of course not. Nothing. God is so powerful and omnipotent over everything. He is sovereign. He can do whatever he pleases. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So why does he ask this question? Ask us to make us think, to grab our attention, to cause us to remember that God can do all things. This is much like the question that we saw and we responded together from Psalm 130. It was a little different translation, but the, the part of it goes like this. If the Lord marks iniquity, who should stand? If the Lord marks iniquity, who is going to stand? And the only possible answer to the psalmist is no one. No one is able to stand. Ever since, the, ever since sin entered the world through one man, Genesis 3 The fall, absolutely no one can stand before a holy God and not be consumed by his wrath. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Biggest Story, we have our kids read that. Maybe some of you parents or grandparents have read that. Uh, He uses this phrase, and 
The picture illustrates it perfectly. As Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, you see the Garden of Eden here, and you see this long steps, and you see uh, Adam and Eve walking down into darkness. And you see this picture, and the phrase that Kevin DeYoung writes on there, he says, it is impossible for a people who are so bad to be near a God who is so good. This is the fall. This is what happened. This is sin. And friends, this is our problem. This is the ultimate human dilemma. God is holy and we are not. God is righteous and we are not. Chapter 1 of verse chapter 1 of Romans in verse 18 it confirms this terrible reality by saying this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth they suppress the truth and the truth is that god does friends in fact mark iniquity and he manifests his wrath against it our world and our culture sometimes wants to uh, pit god's love and his justice against one another well if god's loving then that means he has to forgive sins but scripture says that he will punish sin. The guilty will by no means escape. When I was a kid, I've, I think I've shared this here before, but we often think of salvation as, well, God just turned a blind eye to my sin and they wiped it under the rug. But it wasn't until the realization that no, he didn't do that. He actually placed all of my sin and all of my um, uh, disobedience on his own son. He marked my iniquity on his own son, marked it with lashes on his back, marked it with thorns in his brow, marked it with nails in his hands and in his feet. So friends, he does mark iniquity. And the truth is that unless God intervenes, unless God rescues, unless he gives me a righteousness that is not my own and applies it to my account, then then I'll be eternally lost all of us will be eternally lost and separated from him. And you're like, where are you going with this? How does this fit into Genesis chapter 18? But knowing this foundational truth, the fall of man, and the backdrop and the reason for the story that's unfolding for us here in Genesis 18, it's the story of redemption. In fact, it's this story of all of the Bible. It's God's great and sovereign plan to gain a people for his own name. A people from all nations, tribes, and languages. It's, it's God creating for himself a people for his own possession. A people who trust him and love him and follow him. And we can see this great rescue plan promised All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first mention of the gospel, the good news, the news that someone is coming, that there is one who is coming to crush the head of the devilish snake. Sure, he will be bruised. Isaiah 53 says he will be wounded. He will be crushed. He will be given stripes on his back. But he will be victorious and he will bring peace. Now this eternal plan took a decisive turn when God called Abram and the great promise that he made in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2. You remember it? 
It's where God says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses you, I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we're finding here in the context of our passage in Genesis 18 is how this is actually going to happen. How is it that God is going to bless all peoples through Abraham? Last week in Genesis 17, we saw as as Brandon preached part of the answer, and that was that God was going to make a covenant. He was going to ensure that it was going to happen. Make a covenant, and then he confirms it with the sign of circumcision. It was a covenant to Abraham and to his descendants, a promise from God saying that I will save you, I will bless you to Abraham and to his offspring. Verse 7 of chapter 17 says this, I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. So we get this part, right, about Abraham and his own household. But what about the nations? Well, let me say it this way. What about you? What about me? How are we going to be included in this great promise of blessing, a a covenant relationship with God? How is that going to happen? Chapter 17, verse 4 says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. When we read this, I think we should take this to mean that the way that the nations... The way that um, you and I will be blessed in Abraham is is by becoming Abraham's offspring. By becoming Abraham's offspring. By being adopted, if you were, into his family. How is that going to happen? Somehow this blessing, this covenant will reach all the nations and yet this blessing that we're talking about here in Scripture will only come to Abraham's seed. To his offspring. You see a problem with this? You see the, what's going on here? Are you following along in this story and what God is communicating in his, in his word? Somehow, some way, Abraham is going to be the father of all kinds of people, people from all different nations. How will that take place? How will that happen? Are you guys watching the Olympics? Right, I watched the Olympics, uh, and my favorite, one of my favorite parts is the opening ceremony. Not because of the whole acts and the charade and all the stuff they put on, and definitely not for how long it takes, but for the fact that you see multiple peoples, the nations walking in together and marching. And you know what, friends? Our world is so bent on seeing people differently, but if you look, they don't look a whole lot different than we do, right? They look a lot like us. They look a lot like me. What a beautiful picture of what heaven will look like. All the nations, different tribes and tongues coming together in one place. I heard a pastor once say, if you don't like other people, you don't like other countries and the nations, then you definitely won't like being in heaven. Because that's what it's going to be like, friends. It's going to be a place where the nations gather to worship Christ. Where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But how is that going to be possible? How can this be? It sounds impossible. One thing that we have already seen 
in going through this is that it's not going to happen by the powers of the flesh. That is, it's not going to happen by human effort. It's going to take something supernatural. It's not going to happen by, in a natural way. This was made very clear, crystal clear, in fact, in the affair with Hagar. God promises Abraham, and Abraham, he believes God. It was counted to him as righteousness. But Abraham, right, becomes restless, and he says, you know, I I know I'm supposed to have an offspring, but nothing's happening, and I'm not getting any younger. My descendants are supposed to be like the stars of the sky in heaven. So, So Abraham resolves to take matters into his own hands, and he sleeps with his wife's maid. And guess what? It worked. She gave him a son. His name was Ishmael. And so in his mind, Abraham thinks, okay, now we can get on with it, God. Let's go. Let's, let's get this redemptive plan underway and start making me uh, a great nation. However, this child, as we've seen, of the flesh, a child produced by the means and the power of Abraham had in himself, as we see, God said no to that. Genesis seventeen nineteen reads like this. It said, God said no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, not with Ishmael, as an everlasting covenant for the descendants after him. Why, friends, why is it that God waited so long to give the promised child? Why is it that God waited so long? Genesis 18, verse 11, I think gives us the answer. Look at it with me. 18, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. The way of women had ceased to be with her. Sarah had no children. She was unfruitful. She didn't have children, and now physically speaking, she couldn't have any children. And that's not just by coincidence that this took place. Genesis eleven thirty says that Sarah was barren even before they came into the promised land. And Genesis sixteen two said that Sarah says this that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So what this is pointing to and what is it teaching us here is that God is orchestrating that God is sovereignly uh, uh, moving and ordering things so that the fulfillment of his promise will not be done by in any kind of human possible way it has to be supernatural it has to be all of God humanly speaking this could not happen so God waited until it was impossible for a 99-year-old, and his wife who was trailing him to actually have a child. He waited until only he could fulfill his promise. This is what I, I like the way John Piper stated that, this promise. He said, God gives a promise unlike any human promise that we can give because his promise carries his power to fulfill it. So this is what God is doing. He's waiting until the right moment. And that's what verse 14 says. It says, at the appointed time. At the appointed time. At the foreordained time. When I want it to happen, I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah shall have a son. This language 
this phrase, at the appointed time, does it remind you of any other verses in Scripture? It reminded me this morning uh, of Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Remember that verse? It says, for while we were still weak, while we were barren, while we were aged and unable, didn't have the ability, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, it says, Christ died for the ungodly. Brothers and sisters, this is the point I think we need to see today. The nugget of truth is that God waits until it is humanly impossible for the child of the covenant to be born in order to show that it is not by human effort that the covenant people will be created. Let me say it another way. It is not by your own doing that you are saved. One of my favorite verses, Jonah 2.9, says this, Salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord from the beginning to the end and everything in between, it belongs to God so that no one may boast before him. Trevin, uh, Trevin Wax, in his, in his book, um, Holy Subversion, writes about this and he observes what he calls the Ephesians Road. If you look through the book of Ephesians, he said, salvation starts in the heart of God. Salvation is a gift that comes from God's great love for us so that he might be able to show the world how gracious he is. And he concludes with, salvation is all of God, all from God, and all for God. The verse that we would all know well and, and, and articulates this same thing is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This, this salvation is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of the flesh. So that no one may boast. So becoming an offspring of Abraham. Which all of us must be. If we're going to receive this blessing. Is a work of divine and sovereign grace. The formation of a people bringing the languages together, a people for his own possession, being a child of God for the sake of his name, from all the families coming together, is not a human creation. Again, this is why Ishmael would not qualify as the covenant child. Symbolically, Ishmael stood for the work of the flesh, the works of lawlessness. So back to our initial question. Let me ask you, is anything too hard for God? This question is really about God's ability to create for himself a people against all human odds. Can God do the impossible? Jesus touches on this very thing, this impossibility in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 10 when he writes uh, um, um, at the rich young ruler, Jesus is visiting with him. Remember this story, the rich young ruler or the rich young man, he, he leaves disheartened because Jesus said that you need to give up your worldly possessions. You need to give that up and follow me. I need to be your first love. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And 
And by this, his disciples were blown away. They were staggered, and they said, well, then, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus replies with the same thing here, Genesis 18, 14. And he says, with men, with Abraham's and Sarah's, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God, Jesus tells his disciples. Can God, friends, do the impossible? The answer of this story, the answer here in Genesis 18, and indeed the answer of all the Bible is yes, he can, and yes, he will. The yes finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The yes finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what we looked at just a moment ago. I invite you to go there with me to Galatians. Paul emphasizes this. Galatians chapter 3. The New Testament clearly points to the fact that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Listen to what it says. Starting in verse 10, for all of you who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, here it is, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then over to verse 29. It says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So how is it possible that God is going to grab the nations and bring them together to worship Him, to trust Him, to love Him in a covenant relationship? It's by being a child of promise. It's by being a child of God. And friends, the only way that that's possible is through Jesus Christ. It's by being in Christ. It's by believing in Him. Is this of our own doing? Have we Gentiles become Abraham's offspring because of our own power and work and our our own law keeping? It's not of our own doing. It's too hard for us, but nothing is too hard for God. And when you apply this and you look at this, you understand this is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Matter of fact, In John chapter 1, the great passage, the prologue to his gospel, when he he writes about the manifestation or the the word becoming flesh, listen to what he says in chapter 1, 12 through 13. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, listen to this, who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Only God can do this work. Only God can do the impossible work of bringing us into right relationship with Him. Scripture 
commands, commends and commands us to believe, to forsake sin, and to love Christ. Friends, this morning I want to urge you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put your trust in Him. Maybe you've never done that today. Maybe you're here and you're like, I just don't know. I think that's a little too scary for me. I just want to remind you here that God is patient. That God is kind. We saw that in the way He interacted with Abraham. But I want to urge you to believe that He lived the perfect sinless life. He did that, friends, for you. He did that in your place because you haven't done that. He did that in your place because you can't do that. Believe that not only did he live a sinless life for you, but that he died on a Roman cross taking your place. Jesus willingly bearing the wrath of God, putting on your marks of iniquity so that you might be saved. He was pleased to do this, and it pleased the Father to send him to the cross. And believe this, friends, that God accepted his finished work on your behalf, and he proved it by raising him from the dead. So I encourage you to turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you, the rest of the believers, to hear me, hear me say this. A lot of times we say, well, that's good. I've done that already. That's not good for me. Oh, but it is good news for you. The only way to live a life that is following after the Lord is to daily remember the fact that what Jesus has done for you. Remember the fact that you are a child of God, not because of anything that you have done, but by the grace of God. That is the fuel, that is the power that moves us in right relationship with God. Not by our works, lest we boast. It's all of God. He does the impossible work for His glory for the sake for and for our sake. All of us are aged and barren Sarahs. We're like Virgin Marys, powerless without the supernatural work of God to join ourselves, to stand before God in a right way. So how do we respond to this this morning? I think we respond in two ways. First, I want to say we respond by telling people that Jesus does the impossible. Telling them that he does the impossible. Going to the nations and saying, you too can belong. You too can belong. Also, by trusting in God's grace and power. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know the impossible things that face you tomorrow morning, this afternoon. But I know this, that if God can save, and he can overcome anything else. If he wants to, right? Otherwise, you might have to walk through it, but, he, but there's no fear. God says, I am with you, always. Church, be encouraged and confess to the Lord the areas in your life that you've tried to work it out, tried to do the impossible. Confess those to him and lean on him, and he will hold you fast. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we praise you for your word, the fellowship of saints. Lord, would you do a mighty work? Would you take your word and would you root it deep down in your people? Lord, would you draw those who've never trusted in you to yourself? 
Lord, would you cause us to live a life of repentance, realizing that we've tried to do the impossible instead of, re- instead of relying on you, instead of relying on your son. And again today, would you call your people to trust in you in a deeper way? For Jesus' name's sake, we pray. stand together encourage one another with these words when I fear my faith will fail